Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to what for us is Christmas Eve, but which in reality is the night before, the night before, the night before, the night before Christmas. Come in, come in from the chill, doff your hats and coats, unwrap your Tom Baker Hoovian scarves, shed your gloves and pour some hot cider, mix you some hot cocoa and settle down. We have a lovely warm evening planned. Dickens had it right. Christmas is a time of ghosts, of fragments of the things that were, melding with our hopes, our fears, for what will be with the present an ever-changing moment when the future transforms through us into the past, that instant when what we will be meets what we were. We're born into one family. Life, chance, and choice gives us other families— at this one time of year, the time when we give to those we must and give of ourselves to those whom we choose, we are made to look at those people whom we've gathered into our lives and are, 
for better or worse, comfortable with. It's the time when our inner selves become both Santa and Krampus, and we gauge whether or not we've been good boys and girls or naughty ones. Whatever we believe in, this time of year is a time for memory, and memory brings us ghosts, of course. And tonight, three ghost tales. Two of them, classics from a time ago. The third, Stories Like Pearls, is by an old friend, P.D. Kasich. Now, before we bring out the old tales, I, I want to offer another round of thanks to all the people who have created Tales to Terrify over this past year. Yes, it is. In two shows, we'll have reached our first anniversary. Two weeks ago, I thanked Tony C. Smith, who produces Tales to Terrify. He's the mayor, governor, and creator of all the acreage that is the District of Wonders. Thank you, Tony. And then there was Skeet Sienski, our art wrangler extraordinaire. Thank you, and happy holidays to you and yours. And Cher. Cher Reeves is our co-editor. She's the one who keeps me operational, the reader, wrangler, the author, juggler, the one who, well, she is at the heart of this enterprise. And not to forget Harry Markoff, no longer with us, but thank you for putting so much work and effort into the show and into Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. And not to forget out there in the world, by the book. Yes, it is too late for Christmas, I know, but there are those of you out there who didn't get enough stuff, and so go, click the link, buy the book. And there are two more people to thank. These are Cher's trusty lieutenants, junior editors, she calls them. I don't know how junior they are, but one is Stephen T. Howell, the narrator of Cat Rambo's events at Fort Plenitude a couple of weeks ago, and crime author Leroy B. Vaughn, who has been helping share with various editorial tasks. These are the guys who, when a huge story stash arrives, they go through the material and figure out what is and what is not for us. So thank you, gents, and thank you, lady, and thank you all. And thank you, visitors to the Nook. Without you, well, there would be no Nook. I also want to remind you, January 26th, remember? January 26th is your opportunity to sit in as Spider Robinson gives you a personal glimpse of how to write science fiction. Spider's an old friend of the starship. You know him. You know him from Callahan's Cross-Time Saloon, from Stardance, and his recent novel, Very Hard Choices. Class will meet Saturday, January 26th at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Stop by any of the neighborhoods in the District of Wonders and sign up. The information is on all walls and lampposts in the hood. You can enroll just by clicking the button and filling in the information. Then, on January 26th at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, whatever time 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time is for you, you will take your place and be enthralled, okay? Okay. Christmas Tales. Winter Tales. 
Winter Tales is an old concept. It's not much in use in our era. Winter Tales are those kept for telling around a fire on a winter's evening. Things to make you wonder at, something to get into you, to make you shiver, to make you snuggle closer to the one you love. So it is an entertainment meant to give you a glimpse into, yes, dark places, but something you're not required to believe. Yes, they're fairy tales. They are ghost stories. We have ghost stories for you tonight. Three tales by three masters. First is A. M. Alfred McClelland Burridge. Burridge lived from 1889 to 1956. He was a British writer, noted in his time principally as an author of fiction for boys, which he published under the pseudonym Frank Leland. This included, by the way, the popular Tufty series, for which there are still organizations around the world called Tufty Clubs. Burridge served in World War I and, under the name of Ex-Private X, published a memoir of his experience. He's now remembered mainly for his horror fiction, which was originally collected in the books Some Ghost Stories in 1927 and Someone in the Room, 1931. These have been reprinted by Ashtree Press. Tonight, we have a chilly little Christmas tale of holiday gatherings that include a visitor from another place. Here is Smee by A.M. Burridge. said Jackson, with a deprecatory smile. I'm sorry, I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me, but I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of fourteen with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well, it was a season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All, that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was rapturous, almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentant voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks, but... He added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal. I'm not playing hide-and-seek. Why not, someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark... She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped, landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Mrs Fernley said, How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said. But I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment, then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide-and-seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide-and-seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. 
Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee. But of course, they don't know who they're looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers, Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they'll be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try it. I'd happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there? The girl who broke... No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were thirteen of us playing the game, and there were only twelve people in the house. And I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me, but I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to play my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. His words did not make sense at all. Tim Vouse was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at us all. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson, you can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson, and here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They're cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas. Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of the tall, dark-haired, handsome girl who I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their seventeen-year-old son, Reggie, was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested to me when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I have described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all, If you're going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago, before we came here. There was a party, and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. 
Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be ninety. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went around making sure all the lights were off, except the ones in the servants' room and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared twelve sheets of paper. Eleven of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up. Then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quickly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? Smee? After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer, so Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? he remarked. He lit a match, looked up the staircase and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as twelve, then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course, there were twelve of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I'm sure I counted thirteen twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened, and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only twelve of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were twelve people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter? I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and I touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange, cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and there was no one there. Now, I'm sure I touched a hand, and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagine that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. 
I knew you'd say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted thirteen people instead of twelve? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first I stayed with the others, but for several minutes no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha, I thought. I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside me the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was a tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was, sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the personal persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she is using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit here with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realised that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed quite likeable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her, but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural was growing. I remembered touching her arm and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee? whispered a voice that I recognised at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. Tony Jackson, isn't it? she whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you?
No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony, we'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game's beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of this idea that we've got an extra player, somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello, hello, is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean? I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back and we sat looking into the eyes of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once. Then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a trembling voice. I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. You coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Some time later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and soon he told me the reason. Tony, he said, I suppose you're in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there, somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Sangston stared at me. Miss who? he breathed. Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She's playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. you've a mind to learn more of A.M. Burridge, there is an excellent website that devotes itself in part to his work. We'll put it on the website, but it's greatwarfiction.wordpress.com slash who was A.M. Burridge slash. Smee was read for us tonight by Mr. Richie Smith, 
And thanks again for dropping everything and getting this up and ready for us. For Christmas, Richie. Richie was born in 1980 and currently lives in Old Trafford. As he is a thoroughly modern sort of chap, you can go say hello to him on Twitter if you want. He is at at Naranschiff. That is N-A-R-R-E-N-S-C-H-I-F-F. Next, and I am not going to belabor these because we have three stories for you, so keep snuggled, refill your cups, and here we go with a story by Mrs. B. M. Crocker called Number 90. B. M. Crocker was born Bithia Mary Shepherd in Warren Point, County Down, Northern Ireland, on May 28th, 1847. She was the daughter of William Shepherd, who was Anglican rector of Kilgeffen County, Roscommon. Bithia was educated in England and France, and in 1871, she married Lieutenant Colonel John Stokes Crocker, an officer of the Royal Scots Fusiliers and Royal Munster Fusiliers. They traveled to Madras, India in 1877, and they lived there in India and Bengal for 14 years. Many of Mrs. Crocker's stories were written at a place called the Hill Station in Wellington. On Colonel Crocker's retirement in 1892, they came to live in Bray County, Wicklow. In 1897, they moved to England, and she died there on 20th October, 1920. E.M. Crocker is credited with 50 novels and short stories dating from her first, Proper Pride, in 1882, to her last, The House of Rest, published after her death in 1921. Her writing has been described as witty and fast-moving, and most of her works went through numerous reprints, and some were translated into French, Spanish, and German. Recently, some have been translated and printed in Eastern Europe. Twenty of her books have been translated into Hungarian, and a number have also been reprinted in the United States and Japan, both in hard copy and as e-books. Here now is Mrs. B. M. Crocker's Number 90. For a period extending over some years, a notice appeared periodically at various daily papers. It read, To let furnished for a term of years at a very low rental, large old-fashioned family residence comprising eleven bedrooms, four reception rooms, dressing rooms, two staircases, complete servants' offices, ample accommodation for a gentleman's establishment, including six-stall stable, coach house, etc., this advertisement referred to number 90. Occasionally you saw it running for a week or a fortnight at a stretch, as if it were resolved to force itself into consideration by sheer persistency. Sometimes for months I looked for it in vain. Other folk might possibly fancy that the effort of the house agent had been crowned at last with success, that it was let, and no longer in the market. I knew better. I knew that it would never, never find a tenant. I knew that it was passed on as a hopeless case from house agent to house agent. 
I knew that it would never be occupied save by rats, and more than this, I knew the reason why. I will not say in what square, street, or road number ninety may be found, nor will I divulge to human being its precise and exact locality, but this I am prepared to state, that it is positively in existence, is in Charleston, and is still empty. Twenty years ago, this very Christmas, I was down from New York visiting my friend John Hollyoak, a civil engineer from Charleston. We were guests at a little dinner party in the neighborhood of the South Battery. Conversation became very brisk as the champagne circulated, and many topics were started, discussed, and dismissed. We talked on an extraordinary variety of subjects. I distinctly recollect a long argument on mushrooms. Mushrooms, murders, racing, cholera... From cholera we came to sudden death, from sudden death to churchyards, and from churchyards it was naturally but a step to ghosts. John Hollyoak, who was the most vehement, the most incredulous, the most jocular, the most derisive of the anti-ghost faction, brought matters to a climax by declaring that nothing would give him greater pleasure than to pass a night in a haunted house, and the worse its character, the better he would be pleased. His challenge was instantly taken up by our somewhat ruffled host, who warmly assured him that his wishes could be easily satisfied and that he would be accommodated with a night's lodging in a haunted house within twenty-four hours, in fact, in a house of such a desperate reputation that even the adjoining mansions stood vacant. He then proceeded to give a brief outline of the history of number ninety. It had once been the residence of a well-known country family, but what evil events had happened therein tradition did not relate. On the death of the last owner, a diabolical-looking aged person much resembling the typical wizard, it had passed into the hands of a kinsman resident abroad who had no wish to return to Charleston and who desired his agents to let it, if they could, a most significant condition. Year by year went by, and still this highly desirable family mansion could find no tenant. Although the rent was reduced, and reduced, and again reduced to almost zero, the most ghastly whispers were afloat, the most terrible experiences were actually proclaimed on the housetops. No tenant would remain, even gratis, and for the last ten years this handsome, desirable town family residence had been the abode of rats by day and something else by night, so said the neighbors. Of course, it was the very thing for John, and he snatched up the gauntlet on the spot. He scoffed at its evil repute and solemnly promised to rehabilitate its character within a week. I was charged by our host to serve as a witness, to verify that John Hollyoke did indeed spend the night at number 90, the next night, at ten o'clock, I found myself standing with John on the steps of the notorious abode. But I was not going to remain. The carriage that brought us was to take me back to my respectable chambers. This ill-fated house was large, solemn-looking, and gloomy. A heavy portico frowned down on neighboring bare-faced hall doors. The elderly caretaker was prudently awaiting us outside with a key. 
which, said Key, he turned in the lock and admitted us into a great echoing hall, black as night, saying as he did so, My missus has made the bed and stoked up a good fire in the first front, sir. Your things is all laid out, and I hope you'll have a comfortable night, sir. No, sir, thank you, sir, excuse me. I'll not come in. Good night. And with the words still on his lips, he clattered down the steps with the most indecent haste and vanished. And of course you will not come in either, said John. It is not in the bond, and I prefer to face them alone. And he laughed contemptuously, a laugh that had a curious echo. It struck me at the time. A laugh strangely repeated with an unpleasant mocking emphasis. Call for me, alive or dead, at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, he added, pushing me forcibly out into the porch and closing the door with a heavy, reverberating clang that sounded halfway down the street. I did call for him the next morning, as desired, with the caretaker, who stared at John's commonplace, self-possessed appearance with an expression of respectful astonishment. So it was all a humbug, of course, I said, as he took my arm, and we set off for our club. You shall have the whole story whenever we have had something to eat, he replied, somewhat impatiently. It will keep till after breakfast. I'm famishing. I remarked that he looked unusually grave as we chatted over our broiled fish and omelette, and that occasionally his attention seemed wandering, to say the least. The moment he had brought out his cigar case and lit up, he turned to me and said, I see you are just quivering to know my experience, and I won't keep you in suspense any longer. In four words, I have seen them. I merely looked at him with widely parted mouth and staring interrogative eyes. I believe I had best endeavor to give the narrative without comment, and in John Hollyoak's own way. This is, as well as I can recollect, his experience, word for word. I proceeded upstairs after I had shut you out, lighting my way by a match, and found the front room easily, as the door was ajar, and it was lit up by a roaring and most cheerful-looking fire, and two wax candles. It was a comfortable apartment, furnished with old-fashioned chairs and tables, and the traditional four-poster bed. There were numerous doors, which proved to be cupboards, and when I had executed a rigorous search in each of these closets and locked them and investigated the bed above and beneath, sounded the walls and bolted the door, I sat down before the fire, I lit a cigar, opened a book, and felt that I was going to be master of the situation, and most thoroughly and comfortably at home. My novel proved absorbing. I read on greedily, chapter after chapter, and so interested was I, and amused, for it was a lively book, that I positively lost sight of my whereabouts, and fancied myself reading in my own chamber. There was not a sound. The coals dropping from the grate occasionally broke the silence, till a neighboring church clock slowly boomed twelve. The hour, I said to myself with a laugh, as I gave the fire a rousing poke, and commenced a new chapter— but ere I had read three pages, I had occasion to pause and listen. What was that distinct sound now coming nearer and nearer? Rats, of course, said Common Sense. It was just a house for vermin. Then a longish silence, again a stir, sounds approaching, 
as if apparently caused by many feet passing down the corridor. High-heeled shoes, the sweeping switch of silken trains. Of course, it was all imagination, I assured myself, or rats. Rats were capable of making such curious, improbable noises. Then another silence. No sound but cinders and the ticking of my watch, which I had laid upon the table. I resumed my book, rather ashamed and a little indignant with myself for having neglected it, and calmly dismissed my late interruption as rats, nothing but rats. I had been reading and smoking for some time in a placid and highly incredulous frame of mind, when I was somewhat rudely startled by a loud single knock at my room door. I took no notice of it, but merely laid down my novel and sat tight. Another knock, more imperious this time. After a moment's mental deliberation, I arose, armed myself with the poker, prepared to brain any number of rats, and threw the door open with a violent swing that strained its very hinges, and beheld, to my amazement, a tall powdered footman in a laced scarlet uniform, who, making a formal inclination of his head, astonished me still further by saying, "'Dinner is ready.' "'I'm not coming,' I replied, without a moment's hesitation, and thereupon I slammed the door in his face, locked it, and resumed my seat. Also my book. But reading was a farce. My ears were aching for the next sound. It came soon, rapid steps running up the stairs, and again a single knock. I went over to the door and once more discovered the tall butler, who repeated, with a studied courtesy, "'Dinner is ready, and the company are waiting.' "'I told you I was not coming. "'Be off and be hanged!' I cried again, shutting the door violently. "'This time I did not make even a pretense at reading. "'I merely sat and waited for the next move. "'I had not long to sit. "'In ten minutes I heard a third loud summons. "'I rose, went to the door, and tore it open. "'There, as I expected, was the servant again, with his parrot speech.' "'Dinner is ready, and the company are waiting, and the master says you must come.' "'All right, then, I'll come,' I replied, wearied by reason of his importunity, and feeling suddenly fired with a desire to see the end of the adventure. He accordingly. "'How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC.' For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. He led the way downstairs, and I followed him, noting as I went the gold buttons on his coat, 
also that the hall and passages were now brilliantly illuminated by glowing candles, and hung with living green, the crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflecting back the light. There were several uniformed servants passing to and fro, and from the dining-room there issued a buzz of tongues, loud volleys of laughter, many hilarious voices, and a clatter of knives and forks. I was not left much time for speculation, as in another second I found myself inside the door, and my escort announced me in a loud voice as, Mr. Hollyoak. I could hardly credit my senses, as I looked round and saw about two dozen people, dressed in a fashion of the eighteenth century, seated at the table, set for a sumptuous Christmas dinner, and lighted up by a blaze of wax candles in massive candelabra. A swarthy elderly gentleman, who presided at the head of the board, rose deliberately as I entered. He was dressed in a crimson coat, braided with silver. He wore a white wig, had the most piercing black eyes I ever encountered, made me the finest bow I ever received in all my life, and with a polite wave of his hand indicated my seat. A vacant chair between two powdered and embroidered beauties, with overflowing white shoulders and necks sparkling with diamonds. At first I was fully convinced that the whole affair was a superbly matured practical joke. Everything looked so real, so truly flesh and blood, so complete in every detail. But I gazed round in vain for one familiar face. I saw young, old and elderly, handsome and the reverse, on all faces there was a similar expression, reckless, hard, and defiance, and something else that made me shudder, but that I could not classify or define. Were they a secret community, burglars or counterfeiters? But no, in one rapid glance I noticed that they belonged exclusively to the upper stratum of society, bygone society. The jabber of talking had momentarily ceased, and the host, imperiously hammering the table with a knife handle, said in a singularly harsh, grating voice, Ladies and gentlemen, permit me to give you a toast. Our guest, looking straight at me with his glittering, cold black eyes. Every glass was immediately raised. Twenty faces were turned towards mine, when happily a sudden impulse seized me. I sprang to my feet and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I beg to thank you for your kind hospitality, but before I accept it, allow me to say grace. I did not wait for permission, but hurriedly repeated a Latin benediction ere the last syllable was uttered. In an instant there was a violent crash, an uproar, a sound of running, of screams, groans, and curses, and then utter darkness. I found myself standing alone by a big mahogany table, which I could just dimly discern by the aid of a street lamp that threw its meager rays into the great empty dining room from two deep and narrow windows. I must confess that I felt my nerves a little shaken by this instantaneous change from light to darkness, from a crowd of gay and noisy companions to utter solitude and silence. I stood for a moment trying to recover my mental balance. I rubbed my eyes hard to assure myself that I was wide awake, and then I placed this very cigar case in the middle of the table as a sign and token that I had been downstairs, 
which cigar case I found exactly where I left it this morning, and then went and groped my way into the hall and regained my room. I met with no obstacle en route. I saw no one, but as I closed and double-locked my door, I distinctly heard a low laugh outside the keyhole, a sort of suppressed, malicious titter that made me furious. I opened the door at once. There was nothing to be seen. I waited and listened. Dead silence. I then undressed and went to bed, resolved that a whole army of butlers would fail to allure me once more to that Christmas feast. I was determined not to lose my night's rest, ghosts or no ghosts. Just as I was dozing off, I remember hearing the neighboring clock chime two. It was the last sound I was aware of. The house was now as silent as a vault. My fire burnt away cheerfully. I was no longer in the least degree inclined for reading, and I fell fast asleep and slept soundly till I heard the cabs and milk carts beginning their morning career. I then rose, dressed at my leisure, and found you, my good faithful friend, awaiting me, rather anxiously at the hall door steps. I have not done with that house yet. I'm determined to find out who these people are and where they come from. I shall sleep there again tonight, along with my bulldog, and you will see that I shall have news for you tomorrow morning, if I am still alive to tell the tale, he added with a laugh. In vain I would have dissuaded him. I protested, argued, and implored. I declared that rashness was not courage, that he had seen enough, and that I, who had seen nothing and only listened to his experiences, was convinced that number ninety was a house to be avoided. I might just as well have talked to my umbrella. So, once more, I reluctantly accompanied him to his previous night's lodging. Once more I saw him swallowed up inside the gloomy, forbidding-looking, re-echoing hall. I then went home in an unusually anxious, semi-excited, nervous state of mind. I lay wide awake, tumbling and tossing hour after hour, a prey to the most foolish ideas, ideas I would have laughed to scorn in daylight. More than once I was certain that I heard John Hollyoak distractedly calling me, and I sat up in bed and listened intently. Of course it was fancy. For the instant I did so, there was no sound. At the first gleam of winter dawn, I rose, dressed, and swallowed a cup of good, strong coffee to clear my brain from the misty notions it had harbored during the night, and then I invested myself in my warmest topcoat and set off for number ninety. Early as it was, it was but half-past seven, I found the caretaker was before me, pacing the pavement, his face drawn with a melancholy expression. I was not disposed to wait for eight o'clock. I was too uneasy and too impatient for further particulars of the Christmas dinner party. So I rang with all my might and knocked with all my strength. No sound within, no answer. But John was always a heavy sleeper. I was resolved to arouse him all the same and knocked and rang and rang and knocked incessantly for fully ten minutes. I then stooped down and applied my eye to the keyhole. I looked steadily into the aperture till I became accustomed to the darkness. And then it seemed to me that another eye, a very strange fiery eye, was glaring into mine from the other side of the door. 
I removed my eye and applied my mouth instead and shouted with all the power of my lungs, John! John Hollyoak! How his name echoed and re-echoed up through the dark and empty house. He must hear that, I said to myself as I pressed my ear closely against the lock and listened with throbbing suspense. The echo of Hollyoak had hardly died awake when I swear that I distinctly heard a low, sniggering, mocking laugh. That was my only answer. That and a vast, unresponsive silence. I was now quite desperate. I shook the door frantically. With all my strength, I broke the bell. In short, my behavior was such that it excited the curiosity of a police officer who crossed the road to know what was up. I want to get in, I panted, breathless with my exertions. You'd better stay where you are, said the police officer. The outside of this house is the best of it. There are terrible stories. But there is a gentleman inside it, I interrupted impatiently. He slept there last night, and I can't wake him. He has the key. Oh, you can't wake him, returned the police officer gravely. Then we must get a locksmith. But already the thoughtful caretaker had procured one, and already considerable and curious crowd surrounded the steps. After five minutes of maddening delay, the great heavy door was opened and swung slowly back, and I instantly rushed in, followed less frantically by the police officer and the caretaker. I had not far to seek John Hollyoak. He and his dog were lying at the foot of the stairs, both stone dead. Number 90 was read for us tonight by Jared Hess. No, not that Jared Hess. No, no, no. He who wrote and directed Napoleon Dynamite, though our Jared also lives in Utah, Mapleton, Utah, to be specific. He lives there with his wife and three children. He does technical writing and web page design for a living, and outside of narration, he says he enjoys gaming, reading, writing, padded sword fights, racquetball, singing, theater, chocolate, and his family. You can find him online at hessmess.blogspot.com. That's H-E-S-S-M-E-S-S dot blogspot.com. Our last Christmas ghost tale is by P.D. Kasich. P.D., by the way, stands for Patricia Diana. There's a joy and an Anne in the name, too. It's a wonderful name for a romance writer, she says, and that's why I write as P.D. Kasich. Well, her friends know her as Trish, and Trish is among a select group of writer friends who have lain their weird and weary heads upon the cushions of the nook in past years. Trish stayed on in Chicago after a World Horror Convention a few years back to do some sightseeing here, and in particular she wanted to see the Lions of Tsavo, which are still at the Field Museum. And if you don't know of these critters, you should. Look them up or watch the movie, The Ghost in the Darkness. Here is Trisha's Stories Like Pearls. (laughs) ¶¶ 
They were like pearls strung onto a necklace so old that it was only with the greatest care that it could be examined for fear that the delicate cord to break. Of course, no matter how much care she took, the strand always came undone, and the pearls would fall and scatter and be revealed for what they were. Flawed, imperfect forgeries. Paste masquerading beneath a coat of lacquer. Trifles. But even then, even after the deception was revealed, one, if not more, of her pearls were pocketed and carried away, as if by accident. This reminds me of a story about the little dog that wandered away while his family was at the shore and had all those adventures before finally making its way home. Yes, that's right. Good heavens, I haven't thought about it in years. Funny, isn't it? How some stories just seem to stay with you? Not funny at all, she whispered, then let the quiet settle back over her like a shawl. So many pearls given away, so many left to give. That was the benefit of having so large a family. There'd always be another to come and listen while she restrung the necklace. Another, like the one currently making such slow progress down the hall to her room, who would, she suspected by the soft, tentative steps, make a most excellent listener. It was always the timid ones who carried away the most pearls. Hello, she called out softly, so as not to frighten her newest visitor. I hear you out there. The footsteps stopped, as she knew they would, because she also knew hers were not the only pearls her large extended family gathered. She knew the stories they told about her, about the old woman tucked away in one of the forgotten rooms at the far end of a long, dark, and thanks to the embellishments of each generation that went before, vividly foreboding hallway, but couldn't find it in herself to blame them. She was, after all, an old woman confined to the room that had been hers since infancy by virtue of age and infirmity. Why shouldn't they talk about her? And, truth be known, she rather enjoyed being the stuff of legends. She cleared her throat and heard a corresponding gasp from the hallway. Only God knew what fancies this particular sojourner's predecessors had told. Probably that she had hair like frozen river mist and eyes like boiled eggs, claws instead of fingers, naturally, and a ravenous appetite for small, succulent children. Heaven help them. I said I heard you, she repeated a bit louder and much more gently. You've already come this far. Won't you come a bit further? There was a moment's pause. Then the steps began again. Tap, tap, tap. The slow, purposeful stride of a condemned prisoner walking to the gallows. Poor dear. Her newest visitor was a boy, about six or seven. In her long experience as family storyteller, she'd become quite good at deciphering the subtle variation of age and gender. Guessing the age wasn't difficult. An older child, though just as frightened, 
would have feigned bravery with a quick left-right-left march. A younger one simply would not have come regardless of the jibes, cajoles, or threats by its peers. As for gender, a girl of the same age would have stopped short of the doorway and peeped around the frame. An older boy would have stopped dead center of the threshold and cleared his throat to show how fearless he was. An older girl, tottering on the brink of young womanhood, would have walked slowly into the room, bearing a small token, a flower, or a bit of lace, perhaps, or even a silver tray adorned with cookies or sweetmeats, which she alone would nibble. So, by simple deduction, her newest visitor was a boy, fearful of the stories he'd heard, but all too eager for the stories she'd tell. Well, then... She let herself gaze steadily at the darkness beyond the banked fire's glow. "'Will you tell me your name, at least?' There was the faintest whisper from that hallway. A soft whirr of material rubbing against itself. Corduroy, of course. Slacks, and perhaps a jacket and matching vest. The standard dress for little boys consigned to the agony of festive family gatherings, in which, she had it on good authority, they unanimously and vehemently loathed. A whisper. I'm sorry, dear, but you'll have to speak up just a bit. I said my name's Jonathan. Bravo, brave lad. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. "'Did you have a nice supper, Jonathan?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'Well-mannered, too. "'And were your cousins good to you? "'No fights were there?' "'Pause. "'Not too many. "'And honest. "'Ah, well, that sometimes happens when families get together. "'Yes, ma'am.' "'She smiled and wheeled her chair back toward the hearth. They were very good about keeping the small fire going in her room to ward off the chill and damp, and in case one of them happened by. Like now. That was the reason for the large overstuffed chair, which she couldn't possibly use. She hadn't sat in anything but the wheeled chair since the eve of her sixty-ninth birthday, when a stroke took away her legs. But she liked having something comfortable to offer her visitors. "'and they knew that. "'Do you know who I am, Jonathan? "'Did they tell you?' "'Yes, ma'am. "'Your grandmother Wilkins.' "'Grandmama will do.' "'This time she kept the silence "'for a full count of five. "'I do hate talking to someone I can't see, "'so why don't you come in?' I would think it must be rather uncomfortable standing out in a dark and drafty hallway. Not really. Brave, but not reckless. She couldn't help but chuckle. Well, why don't you come in anyway? It's quite lovely and warm in here. The slow tread of the condemned resumed, filling the silence between them. Three, four, five... And finally the fire's glow caught and reflected off the polished tip of a sturdy brown Oxford. Then, like a phantom materializing bit by bit from the mist, 
a leg encased in soft brown corduroy, how well she knew her family, appeared. Next, an arm, then a shoulder and torso, and finally the pale, frightened little face. He was an angel, a little dark angel with soft gray eyes and blue-black curls that had fought and won their victory from whatever hair tonic or pomade his mother had applied. "'How do you do, Jonathan?' she said, and folded her decidedly unclaw-like hands across the velvet lap robe covering her useless legs. "'I'm so very glad to meet you. Would you like to sit down?' He nodded, but didn't move a muscle, as his eyes took her in and made her real. She must have been quite a disappointment, considering what he'd undoubtedly been told. Small, for she had never reached a full five feet in height, and delicate of bone, or so her father had always liked to tell her. She returned his nod and felt the tight coil of white hair at the base of her neck brush against the wheelchair's woven cane back. The style of her hair was as old-fashioned as the high neck long-sleeved, button-front shirt-waist she wore, comfortable but woefully out-of-date. Like herself, out-of-date but comfortable, and she would have been the first to agree should any of her visitors ever mention it, which, of course, they never would, because if they did, the stories might stop, and the pearls she offered be lost forever. Lifting one hand, she held it out, palm upwards towards the company chair opposite her. But still the boy, Jonathan, remained rooted in the doorway, and would, she suspected, have been quite content to stay that way until a parent, noting his absence, or a sibling, looking either for a cohort or victim, came looking for him. If she didn't think of something quickly, her newest pearl-gatherer would escape, with nothing more than a worthless grain of sand in his pocket. And then, quite suddenly, and as if by magic, the strained hush was filled with music. From somewhere down the hall, a piano began playing a song that had been old when she was a child. Her mother had played it, with more skill than its current performer, alas. "'I know this melody,' she said, flinching, when a note meant to be played as a sharp instead of a flat, threw the piece momentarily off course. And I warrant its player, he never could manage that stretch. Could it be Woodrow McGowan, do you think? The boy smiled from the safety of the doorway. It might be. Great Uncle Woodrow is here and kept talking about playing. Great Uncle, is it now? "'Yes, ma'am. I, I mean, Grandmama. How wonderful. And does he still gobble down black licorice buttons and whorehound drops by the handful?' A tiny wrinkle weaved its way across the boy's smooth forehead. "'I don't think so. Great Aunt Connie doesn't like him eating between meals. He's supposed to be on a low-carb diet.' "'Low-carb. I see.' She nodded as if she understood and again motioned to the chair. "'Please, won't you sit down? My hand is getting very tired.' 
She added a wavering plea to her voice, and it worked, as it always did. Children were so easily persuaded. Thank goodness. He moved so slowly that at first she wasn't sure he was moving at all, or if the flickering firelight was playing tricks on her perception. But when she was sure that the distance between them lessened, she lowered her hand and laced her fingers primly in her lap and smiled at his timid, shy advance. She kept very still and didn't move so much as a thought until he was well ensconced within the upholstered chair's warm embrace. It was only then, after he got as comfortable as he could, given the circumstances, that she moved her hands to her chair's wooden wheels and slowly rolled forward until they were mere inches apart. His eyes were very big by then, but he hadn't pulled his legs out of the way, nor did he bolt for the door yelling for his mother. It is hard to meet new people, isn't it, Jonathan? Even if they are relatives, I mean. Her question was rewarded with a tiny nod. But I have a feeling we're going to be very good friends very quickly, don't you? Another nod, hesitant in coming, but a nod nonetheless. Well, then, she put her hands back into her lap and took a deep breath. I suppose you're here for a story, am I right? The firelight reflected the sudden glimmer in the child's eyes. Yes, ma'am, I mean, Grandmama. Any particular kind of story? I have funny stories and sad ones. I can tell stories about pirates and highwaymen or animals or ghosts. Naturally. Ah, so it's a ghost story you want, is it? Well, then, let me see. She leaned back into the chair, elbows atop the age-polished armrests, fingers steepled against the point of her chin. What sort of ghost story would you like to hear? A very scary one, or one that's just a little scary? The child's eyes shifted from hers to the shadows that were already gathering in the corners of the room, then back again. I, um... Hmm, you're right. She mimicked the same path his eyes had taken and added a small shiver, for effect. It is getting rather dark, isn't it? He nodded most earnestly. Then, what if I tell you a story about a rather hapless ghost who, owing to a rather nasty incident involving a cannon, was forever leaving his head in the oddest places? Would you like to hear that one? What had begun as a shy smile at the doorway blossomed into a lopsided grin. Yes, the pearl would be going into good hands. That would be fine, Grandmama. Well, then, this is a story about a little girl. No, pardon, a little boy who woke up one night while the wind howled and the clouds tore their way across the face of a bone-white moon and saw something huddled at the end of his bed. She kept her voice soft and wove the story so gently that when, as it must in any good ghost story, 
a ghastly event occurred. He hardly shuddered at all. And time moved slowly in the room, allowing them as much of itself as it could spare. But not enough. Never enough. And then, at the first crowing of the cock, the little boy bid farewell, knowing, though, he would never see the ghost again, that all was finally put to rights, and his hapless, headless friend could now find eternal rest. Knees to chin, arms embracing shins, shoes digging trenches into the tufted, upholstered cushion. Her guest's wide eyes shone like coals in the firelight. He would, she knew, have sat there unmoving, waiting for another story, and another, and another, forever if she allowed it, which she couldn't. The end, she said, and watched him start, waking from the dream she'd told. Did you like the story, Jonathan? Oh, yes, Grandmama, very much. May I hear another? Ah, well, it's getting rather late, and... Johnny! Hey, Johnny! Another voice began when the echoes of the first died. I told you to get your nephew, not scream down the house. Sorry, Aunt Connie. A footstep, solid and sure, thumped into the hall. But before another sounded, Jonathan leapt from his chair and raced to the doorway. Holding onto the frame, he swung one-handed into the hall and stopped the invader from coming any farther. How sweet. I'll be right there, Uncle Frank. Frank? Ah, yes, I remember him. He loved pirate stories the best. Okay, but you'd better hurry, Squirt. We're about to take family pictures. Jonathan said something else that was too soft for her to catch, then waved and stepped back into the room. He was chewing his bottom lip as he tipped his head back toward the hall. Just as he'd been hesitant at first to enter her room, now it was even more obvious that he didn't want to leave it. I have to go, Grandmama. I know, and you'd better hurry. Family photos are almost as important as family stories. He nodded, but was not any closer to actually leaving than he'd been a moment before. Is there something you wanted to ask me, Jonathan? She knew there was. Everyone in the family had asked it before him. Family photos, family stories, family question. Are you... I mean... He started, stopped, and started again. They told me you were... She smiled, waiting. Yes, go on, dear. They said... He took a deep breath. Are you a ghost, Grandmama? My brave, brave boy. Yes, I am. And I've been one for a very long time. Does that frighten you? He thought a moment and then smiled. No, not really. I'm glad. John! I have to go, Grandmama. I know, dear. Go on now. I'll be here. Really? Always. His smile brightened the dark hallway as he stepped into it. 
Okay, then. I'll be back, Grandmama. Of course you will, dear. Then he was gone, and she faded back into the wood and shadows of the room that had been hers since infancy, knowing he would be back, until he outgrew her stories and sent someone in his place. But that was the benefit of having such a large family. There'd always be a new set of hands to fill with pearls. Thank you very much for that, Trish. It's a beautiful story. Trish is one of those people who feels ghosts. She enters a room and just knows where they gather. Years ago, I took her to the Red Lion Pub here in Chicago. The Lion is ostensibly one of the most haunted places in the city, or it was. It's due for demolition any day now. Trish picked the very spot. She stopped in the stairwell to the second floor and said, Look, here it is. There. And pointed to a large plaque on the wall, the head of a lion. Confirmed by the owner, that is where it, or at least one of them, was, is. Unfortunately, she did the same here, here in the nook. When she came to stay overnight, she said, Ah, oh, there's one here. <laughs> He's here. And there he was. He's here with us, with me, now, in the nook. Well, she said he's friendly. Nothing to worry about. I haven't worried so far. Trish has won more stokers and other awards than should be legal— now she's also in theater, a playwright. We seem to have traded careers. I used to be in theater. Didn't I tell you that? Yes, I wrote a bit, did some acting, some lighting design. Mostly I directed. And now here I am in horror, and she, well, well, she's doing it all. And I wish her all the best. To make contact with her, she blogs infrequently at http colon slash slash pdkasic. That's P-D-C-A-C-E-K dot wordpress dot com. Stories Like Pearls was narrated for us tonight by Josie Babin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research, she says. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline, one human, she records in a tiny bedroom library, surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. And well, that brings us up to date on the ghost tales. Our evening of winter tales here in the nook is over, and soon you will go forth into the night, into Christmas yet to come. Enjoy yourselves, enjoy your walk home. I won't give you any creepy thoughts to carry you home and into bed and into your dreams tonight, because I hope you do have pleasant dreams. I always do. You see, there are times when we may seem too enraptured by all of this, too focused on terror and drear death. 
I won't go deeply into why we humans embrace the dark. That's beyond my capabilities anyway. But it's different for each of us. When the tale is done, most of us have found succor in, in it. Almost invariably, though, horror seems to be about survival. No matter the awfulness that besets us, it works out. In the end, at least we survive. Those in the tales we write, read, watch, listen to, oh, they may not come off so well, but we have survived, and hopefully we've learned, learned to not go into that old house, not go down that street, not open that box, not seek answers to certain questions. Horror for us here in the Nook is about surviving and learning. It's about experiencing the unbearable and coming back alive. I guess you know what I'm talking about. And I wanted to say a few words, just a few, about events of last week. These are times that, dare I say, try men's souls. They cause us to look at ourselves, to see what we are, what we've become, and what we should be lying there in the shadows. Of course, I'm talking about the murders in Connecticut last week. I'll leave you with that. I hope on your way home you have a thought to those people. You have a thought to the people who died, a thought to the people who are living, carrying with them the memories of their children and the things that could have been and the things that will never be. In any event, have Good Christmases. Have good holidays. Have good Kwanzas. I hope you had a grand whatever it is you celebrate at this time of year, because we all celebrate, don't we? Anyway, have a pleasant walk home. Maybe there'll be snow. There seems to be a hint of it in the air. So, have a good evening. Have a good night. And, of course, as always, have pleasant dreams. My love, my treasured one, are you, my sweet?
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting. The- Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.